Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Jen from DuPage County, Illinois. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hey, Glenn. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We're back uh, here the first week of December. I did. What did, uh, what did you do? What did you have for, for Thanksgiving? Well, we uh, went to my sister's place for, you know, typical Thanksgiving. It's, we typically host it at our house, but with, you know, work schedules, not knowing that I was going to actually be, home, be able to be home for Thanksgiving this year until, you know, more short notice, uh, my sister hosted. But that didn't stop my wife from insisting on, uh, cook, uh, on having me cook up the turkey uh, on the day after Thanksgiving. So we had uh-huh. another Thanksgiving meal on Friday. Um, which quickly got turned on Sunday into the traditional leftover uh, turkey enchiladas. Excellent. That sounds great. And and you, I know you got a snowstorm uh, up there right before uh, Turkey Day. We did. We we did get a snowstorm. I um, well, uh, to be honest, uh, this was sort of my first my first Thanksgiving, uh, separated from the wife and, you know, family issues and all that. So kind of on my own for Thanksgiving this year. Okay. I actually did, I got a turkey. I cooked it all myself. I did yams. I did stuffing. And uh, honestly, I I had a very quiet Thanksgiving watching okay. Mystery Science Theater. There and you go. W- did the whole marathon of Mystery Science Theater. And then the, the next day I had the, the kids and um, we... Uh, we did Thanksgiving separately uh, with you know turkey sandwiches and all that, and right. then uh, and then on the weekend I just got back. On the weekend I took my son, my oldest son, with me on a work trip. I had to go down to Jacksonville, Florida, to and, and unfortunately this is the state of things. I had to fly all the way down there to scan a lift. One wait one one lift. One lift, one lift, and a palm print card, uh, because the <laughs> locals didn't have a scanner. It was already in the courthouse. Uh, the attorney said, "No, nope, that's fine. I'll I'll pay to." So I I went down a day early with my son, and we went to the beach, and we saw a boat parade in Jacksonville, and we wow. hung out on the beach, and it was really nice, and it was a nice little getaway, and uh, two hours of work. <laughs> <laughs> at at most at the courthouse and then Jeez. back on a plane to Minnesota. I mean this 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 was just regular old white card black powder tape, right? Uh, clear lift. Clear lift. <laughs> I was <laughs> clear, clear lift gray powder, which I have to admit took a little bit longer to scan. <laughs> I, you know, I was just talking about that with my wife on the phone a couple of hours ago. Clear lift in Florida, man. Clear lift in Florida. All right. Uh, well, I got a, another quick story um, about working out here in Southern California now. Um, so, uh, Idemia a few years ago moved to a brand new building, and that's where uh, I'm working now. My cubicle kind of, you know, there's windows just a few cubicles over, and kind of see all the trees and the sunset, and you know, nice California weather most days. Uh, and there's you know, a row of trees there. And there's these birds that uh, that come uh, right around dusk every day. And, you know, first it was just like, okay, that's just a lot of birds coming in. And finally, I took a closer look the other day at Glenn. Any guess what kind of bird, what kind of flock of birds 
uh, has, has comes to the Idemia building every night and just kind of hangs out in the trees and makes a lot of noise. If I had to guess, the one thing I see in California in large flocks are crows. See, there are crows, but they stay in the trees across the parking lot, and these birds and the crows all yell at each other. No, no, this is a flock of parrots. Really? <laughs> Green parrots. Every, wow. <laughs> every day just show up and hang out. Like like a whole a flock of parrots. Like, that's a lot of parrots, you know? Um, and I guess the story is that there was some wildlife zoo kind of thing that that had to close down or they escaped or something and now they just kind of hang out in southern california and fly around and and this is where they've uh, at least this group of them have chosen to roost overnight uh, that's so, crazy man <laughs> if if you're ever uh at the idemia headquarters in anaheim california hang around till dusk and uh you can you can hear the parrots come by I have been there at that time, but I have not noticed that. Maybe it was because it was more winter. Well, you're in the winter time. Yeah, so. yeah, okay. yeah. Huh. Well, All anyway. right. I, yeah, I'll, uh, I will definitely look for that. That's, I've, no one's ever told me that before. It's very interesting. All right. So uh, first order of business, a uh, uh, big thanks to a couple of new patrons on Patreon.com. That'd be Lisa and Larissa. Thank you guys very much for supporting our show with, uh, with your contribution. And uh, as always, you can... If you want to kind of throw a dollar or two our way, you can go on to patreon.com slash double podcast and do so. In addition, we've got a brand new way that you can support the show. Um, so along with uh, friends of the show, Carrie Hall and Becca Coutant, uh, we have uh, been putting together um, some merchandise available just in time for Christmas. Um, and that's going to be uh, offered on Zazzle.com. And uh, you can also be able to find it on our, our website, DoubleLoopPodcast.com. So basically ordering it from either place should be basically the same kind of experience. And uh, we'll put uh, links in the show notes. And like I said, just go over to DoubleLoopPodcast.com to see all the stuff. So there's some stuff like coffee mugs and shot glasses with our Double Loop Podcast logo on it now. But we've also got some pretty cool T-shirts. Uh, so, Glenn, yeah. um, what's uh, which which T-shirt so far has uh, has struck your fancy? Well, I have to say, the actually one of the things that really caught my eye was that uh, fingerprint tie. The, the yeah. fingerprint. I, I assume that's one of your doodles. Is that a it's, fingerprint doodle? doodle it is. Yours? It's the. Um, it's it's kind of taken from a doodle I did years ago. Uh, so for this, I kind of cropped it into not just the doodle part, but the actual, just the fingerprint yeah. part, and that is uh, Galton's index finger from the um, the II logo. That that the same finger that they use for the logo. Yeah, uh, I, I thought that was really cool, and of course the uh, the gyro T-shirts I thought were amazing. I was I I. I I was really impressed, and I thought, no, this would be great for Secret Santas, for that fingerprint nerd in your office. 
for you, the listener, if you are a fingerprint nerd, if you're listening to this podcast, we can pretty much assume that. It, uh, it's, it's really cool. There's some really cool stuff on there. I mean, I, I, Eric, I went there thinking it was just going to be a double loop podcast logo on a couple of, you know, of, of objects. But right, right. There's some, no, there's some really creative stuff. You guys did an amazing job. I don't want to take any credit because I had zero involvement in that. <laughs> you guys were all involved in that and did a, a really great job. Really awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Carrie put together that uh, that gyro shirt. Yeah, just um, just you know, throwing some ideas out there and and seeing what sticks. And I've got a couple more to come, and as the, hopefully they'll be up there also. You know, soon enough for uh, for Christmas. But you know, there's plenty out there from beer bottle koozies to wine stoppers and and uh, mouse pads and and the the great thing about this site, which is hosted on Zazzle.com is if uh, they've got hundreds of different things so if you want any of these designs or logos on something else that we haven't specifically put on here you can just transfer that that logo or that design to an iphone case or to a door stopper a door stopper or a watch or they've got like hundreds of things that you can you know customize and and uh you know do up however you want so uh there's lots of you know different double loop themed or fingerprint themed uh designs on there uh for you guys to uh you know to buy like i said it helps support the show with you know usually it's like 10 15 percent um of the cost uh, coming to us and uh no i really hope that the listeners out there see something that they like yeah, I, 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 it's really amazing. Go go check it out. So go to doubleloopodcast.com and uh, you'll be able to see all the designs there. And uh, we're also this week going to start tweeting out uh, some of the designs. The topic for this week, um, the OSAC Friction Ridge Subcommittee has put out a, a new thing. Uh, they've published a new updated process map or workflow. And now... Uh, I think we all remember the one that NIST published about seven years ago. I want to say it was 2012 that that first came out. Correct. That was with the Human Factors as part of their publication. And NIST even was giving out copies of the, the, of the process map uh, on you know, poster form. Uh, fit a nice you know, uh, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper even nicely. Um, this is... This is an upgrade. <laughs> this is quite a bit more detail uh, than than uh, that one. So first, I want to say how to get there. Um, so if you go to the Friction Ridge Subcommittee site, now I usually get there by just typing into Google OSAC FRS. That should, you know, first candidate should be first candidate here. I'm, I'm so a fingerprint examiner. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> um, the the first uh, you know link from Google should be <laughs> should be the Friction Ridge Subcommittee site, and then scroll down a little past halfway to the discipline specific baseline documents, and in the first category process maps, there is a couple links there to the introduction and then also the current process. Now. I, th- I would recommend uh, listeners out there as we go through and discuss this document to 
probably be best to have it open uh, on your screen because uh, being a process map, it is a very visual document and um, it probably be easiest to follow along like that. Um, but we will you know, talk about it, obviously, keeping in mind that we are a, an audio format and, and try to, you know, for those who aren't following along on the document itself, you know, still be able to kind of speak to the topics without needing to follow along, but it probably would be easiest uh, if you have that open as well in front of you. Right. Do you want to talk about the introduction to a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the first thing I want to make sure, be very clear about, uh, and this was as the, the Friction Ridge subcommittee was, was reviewing and getting this, this uh, process, process map together and ready for publication, it was really stressed that this is not a standard, this is not a recommendation even, this is solely a, a picture of current practice. So part of the complication and, and all the detail that this map goes into is because it represents many different ways that many different agencies are conducting latent print comparisons currently, and this is trying to take a picture and map out all of it in one go. Um, so if there's something in here that you're like, oh, that's not right. No one should be doing that anymore. We don't say individualization anymore. Um, then just understand that, no, 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 this, this isn't a recommendation. This isn't a standard. This is just somewhere someone is still doing this. So that is why it is captured and, and in this process map. Yeah, I, I thought that was it was helpful to have that perspective. And as we start talking about it, uh, I, I had some very strong views right away. And I wonder if we can clarify something. You, you at some point were involved in the creation of this, yes? So I was still on uh, OSAC as a member as it was beginning. And then, I was, uh, and then when I kind of rejoined as an affiliate member, uh, I was at that in-person meeting just because I happened to be in Phoenix where it was being hosted where this was reviewed with all the members with the kind of the full members of that subcommittee and lots of comments went up and discussions and things kind of got moved around and fixed a bit um, I see. All right. so that, that, not the entire helpful. process but some of it yeah yeah no that, that's helpful no because you can probably since I, I was not there for any of that i suspect what i'm going to start off with saying uh you'll you'll be able to jump in with a few <laughs> comments or uh, things that were probably said by others, too. I, I don't think what sure. I'm about to say is going to be very unique here. One of the things that I, I liked about the the very first slide, and I'm jumping now just to the first slide of the process map. Page one. Is that, yep. Is that it breaks down the different general stages into uh, a few categories, you know, for and it numbers them, you know. One, the 1,000 steps are administrative assessment, basically taking the case in. 2,000 is the technical assessment of the, of the case. What do we have here? What needs to be done? Who should be working this kind of case? What processes, et cetera? 3,000 is the latent analysis. 4,000 is the known analysis. 5,000 is the comparison slash evaluation. And 6,000 is reporting slash verification. So it breaks it down to those basic kind of things and then gives a little bit of a legend of what the different shapes and boxes mean in a process map if you're not fam you know, familiar with when there's their decision versus when there's their e 
you know, a fact thing or a multi-step process, that kind of thing. So I, I, like, I like that little intro, and I like how it's organized that way. My overall comment, my, the first thing I would say, it, 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 had I been in the room, is this is extremely detailed. It's so detailed, that it, and it's so <laughs> encumbersome that I don't know that it's going to be effective. I like that it's captured everything, but I don't know that everything needs to be a part of what would be useful. In other words, it's so exact and so detailed, I don't know that it is any – I don't know that it is useful. What I like to see is a pared-down version of this, sort of the um, – in the field, here's the working man's copy. If you need to know about um, uh, known analysis or you need to know about pre-case assessment, go to blah, blah, blah resource and then you'll find some details there. I honestly would like to have seen this just focused on latent analysis, comparison, evaluation, and verification. And maybe just a quick reference to reporting. There's so many different things that can happen at pre-assessment that are agency-specific. or so many things that happen in reporting that are agency-specific. Whereas some of the other things, latent analysis, comparison, evaluation, should be less about the agency and more about the examination. So I really would have liked that pared down to a, a more useful handheld document that focuses on those things, whereas I appreciate the detail that's available in a larger supplemental or something like that. That was right. my that was my initial reaction. So, uh, and just to kind of really emphasize the, the detail there, I actually went in, in preparation, because I, I do my homework, you know, most of the, most of the time. Uh, the 2012 process map uh, had 50 steps uh, laid out. Little boxes or circles or diamonds. Uh, yeah, and, and even that seemed a little a little much at the time, but I, right. I appreciate it, and I was involved with that one. That one seemed useful and practical to me. And this one has 188, um, so not quite four times uh, the detail. Yeah, that, that's a great da- that's a great data point, and I suspect that most of those steps. Many of them are in the pre-assessment part before you even take the case in or maybe even afterwards when it comes to reporting. Again, all very well, agency-specific things. I actually would disagree. I would say that the, the bulk of – like the, the, the busiest, you know, biggest uh, pages here are uh, latent analysis and the comparison slash evaluation. Um, yeah. Even the um, the reporting and verification section is mostly verification and only a little bit reporting. Right. Um, so, so uh, but I guess I'm saying let's just we you, we could have taken out 89 steps if we had just focused on latent analysis, comparison, and evaluation. So the um, the the other thing I'll say, and this has been also referencing back to that that introduction document, is that. Uh, Part of the idea here is that as OSAC Friction Bridge Subcommittee continues to develop standards and best practice recommendations, I'm quoting now, um, the uh, this map is going to be updated to reflect a single standardized process. So mm-hmm. now you're right in that uh, some of the you know, assessment or or pre-analysis steps, uh, you know, maybe fairly uh, agency specific. 
and and that could be well, you know, one step they take is in once that gets pared down to a standard, focusing on on paring this down from all right. Here's as big as it's going to get. Let's narrow it down to the one way that's going to be going to look like um, as a standard. Yeah, I, I I get that. I think there are things in here that I thought were unnecessary because they are so generic to forensic evidence and not ACEV or not friction ridge examination. And taking, for example, the case acceptance box, right. for example, logging the chain of custody. Okay, I don't know a crime lab that doesn't do that, uh, no matter what evidence it might be. Assigning case priority, uh, deciding during the request, uh, was there a request received? Uh, Will this case be worked by more than one examiner? Uh, You know, the number of questions that are not specific to fingerprints, but about general forensic examination. And I don't know that they need to be in this document. They could be somewhere or they could be in a supplemental. It, it's good stuff. I'm not, I'm not criticizing the people with that together. It's, it's all part of the entire process. I don't know that it's helpful to have it here. That, that, that would have been my major comment. Good stuff, but is distracting us from the fact that there are 89 steps that are specific to ACEV. Can we focus on those and try to pare those down? So sure. I, that that's my general thought. Sure. Well, that makes sense. Um, so and and like I said, we'll see where it goes goes next in its 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 next version. Which, from what the introduction the introduction document says, uh, will uh, be more of a standard process instead of a let's cover everything uh, process. Sure. Uh, so and it, so then maybe that'll be kind of considered at that point of of uh, pairing this down to to that specific method that standard uh, of just that examination will be what was covered in the next version. Yeah. Okay. So um that's that is you said that was kind of basically the covering of uh, case acceptance and that that's the the first stage and and the the smallest of these uh of these pages. You know, everything fits on on one sheet principle is is kind of gone on by the wayside here. The, the process map is uh, spread across six pages, you know, not including the, the summary intro page, uh, and most of them are bigger than a, a standard 8.5 by 11. So, yeah, like I said, lots of boxes to, to talk through. So, yeah, I, and, and just from experience, I very much remembered when we had a process mapper come in for our drug chemistry unit, yeah. and they did that. It was the same thing, as opposed to... Putting it on a single sheet of paper, something that was a little more handheld, a little more accessible and referenceable, referenceable, one could reference at a moment's notice, they made this gigantic poster with these tiny little boxes and you know, 110 different steps and decision boxes, etc. That became a giant poster that went on a wall that no one ever used, <laughs> ever looked at again. Right. And was not useful or practical, and that and that's that's my there. There needs to be such a fine balance. I appreciate the level of detail and and all the different kinds of decisions and questions that come up, but I do think that sometimes you lose the forest through the trees here by digging in so deep and having such a gigantic process map that you lose 
it's any practicability of it in usefulness. And that, that's what I'm afraid here is that, like you say, Nautibus fits on a gigantic poster that you cover up your Knight Rider poster and Heather Locklear posters <laughs> with and, and put over. Uh, you, you, loo- you lose any practical usefulness. That's my fear. Uh, that 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 might be the oldest old man that I, I've ever heard you uh, you reveal here on the podcast. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm not saying me. I'm saying one person oh, would right, right, right. Co- cover those right, right. posters. Um, so the the next step after that that uh, uh, administrative assessment. And I kind of actually one thing I just struck me was was um, how it kind of. At the end of this whole process, at least the lab I worked in, would you know you'd finish everything up, you'd hand the case off, it'd be technically reviewed and then administratively reviewed, and then the report would be released. And here we're, we're it's basically like a bookend where you have this administrative assessment, and it comes in for a technical assessment, and then the, the main part of the workflow. So I never really kind of considered how that works. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess it's always kind of been there, but I never really considered how that there's this bookend of administrative and then technical and then the meat of the of the sandwich um but in this technical assessment it's basically you get in all the stuff that you're going to need or that you have for this case whether it be um you know latents or knowns um lift cards photos the actual physical evidence um fo- you know actual physical skin like whatever you're going to deal be dealing with in this case all comes in as a, as a starting point uh and then you begin you know one at a time uh, working through assessing and analyzing this uh this evidence and um this this step it's it's a kind of a it's a pre-analysis determining what are you going to begin analyzing so the the full on analysis comes next and uh, this is the steps that that you know lead you to select what is going to be analyzed and um uh and in here is a, a short little verification step even if if some yeah, labs I, have, I like I like that that was in there yeah and every time here throughout the whole document every time you have a verification step you also then have a related conflict resolution step because there's you know you're, you're going to have disagreement eventually if you have a verification step yeah i, I like that that was in there but again I, it seems like it could still be pared down to hey if your agency does verification of this insert this process here see right. supplemental blah 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 for and though you know it, instead of having the arrows and the boxes you could have a note there as opposed to expanding all that and again going through every single little detail and decision in the larger box. But maybe that was their point. Maybe that's what they wanted was one giant document with every single decision and process that they could maybe pare down later or someone could pare well, down later. I, th- I think that is kind of the point is that especially to to blow it up to blow it out so that as the standards get created and you go to a standard on um on having a verification step whether it's just best practice or a standard that group uh that that uh, working group that's developing that document 
can reference this you know very microscopic portion of the workflow and uh, examine okay how are things being done now what do we need to include in the in our actual written out non map document hmm. and with so this is kind of informing how that's going to be written and trying to get all the steps out here all the even possible steps out here now so that nothing that they may want to include in the written out document gets missed. Okay. So a roadmap for standard creation. Right. As opposed to a roadmap for the practical analyst in the laboratory doing the work. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, If you put it in that framework, that changes my perspective a little bit. Because then... Then I don't think of this so much as a practical document that an examiner is going to pick up or show a jury or talk about in the courtroom, but <laughs> a, a, a roadmap for people creating standards to use when writing standards, that I can see. Right. One thing that I um, just want to point out to uh, listeners is as going through these pages in the corners, there's occasionally these little black boxes that are labeled technology assist yeah i I was going to bring that up i'm looking at one right now yeah i and this may just be with my new perspective working for a technology company those really stood out to me as a that yeah the technology is getting there to really provide assistance for some of these steps um, and can be better incorporated to really assist the examiner in their decision, assist with efficiency, assist with conflict resolution, all different kinds of assistance that this technology can pr- provide, but also that, at least currently, they're all in the, their own black boxes unconnected to the rest of the, of the roadmap. So, you know, definitely opportunity to better incorporate them, you know, as they develop and become you know, more available to examiners. All right, so the output of of this pre-analysis step is the latent that, uh, or latents, but, you know, something just one at a time, the latent that you're going to now begin ACEV with. And now we get to analysis. Right. And, man, they they did a pretty good job of including everything in, in this box labeled, consider the following information to, to determine suitability for comparison. Yeah, I agree. And man, that's a good list. <laughs> Agreed. So you've got level one, level two, level three detail, and anything that could be remotely included in any of those three. Uh, but then also, to, you know, because it happens, to, you know, going along with, it's not just that, it can often be contextual information. Like, you know, what kind of crime uh, was it? Some of the other ones I thought were really good was perceived ability or p- perceived peer ability. You know, do you, is there sometimes a uh, subconscious thought of, um, I'm not going to be able to identify that one because, you know, that one's going to be too hard for me. Or I'm not going to compare that one because it'll be too hard for my verifier. Does Is that a subconscious thing? that that influences suitability to determinations uh, and then the reliability of information all the distortion and substrate and deposition pressure and every tonal reversal matrix like there's lots yeah. of stuff listed here and i think they did a pretty good job of listing out just about anything you could consider that could go into that 
suitability uh, determination. Yes, uh, agreed. Again, this would have made a nice supplemental apart from this, but you know, no, I, I I agree. It, it's a very detailed list of things that are important. Uh, one one little thing. I don't know if listeners have been paying attention or noticed this. I, I suspect if they've taken courses from Alice White, they probably are a little more aware of this. There's been this subtle transition that I'm noticing, you know, with level one, level two, level three, away from those what we'll refer to as Ashbawian terms, <laughs> uh, moving away from those terms towards macro and micro features. And I see that appearing here in this document, referring yes. to the level three detail as micro features or other features that John Vanderkolk would refer to as, you know, maybe occasional features and Ashbaugh referred to as accidental features like creases and white lines incipient ridges and those that were never very clear if they were level three or not i i never would have put them in level three category because that's intrinsic ridge shape but there's a little bit of categorization of these characteristics and i don't know if listeners are aware that there has been this little subtle shift i'm not seeing a document that clarifies exactly now what are macro features what are micro features but uh, have you have you noticed that and any thoughts on that Absolutely. Um, so you're right. That that is um, something that. Um, so this is kind of a the way OSAC works. There's different task groups working on different stuff. So as this was being developed, um, you know, another group is working on the examination document, and in that group, it was decided we're going to switch over and label uh, level one as macroscopic and level two and three as microscopic features. I got that right? I yeah, macro features, so. micro features. Right. And and basically it splits down those lines of, you know, everything you would basically used to consider level one is under macro and two and three uh, are, are grouped together in micro. Um, now, part of the reason kind of given for this is that uh, from the people that were you know, proposing and pushing for that uh, that change was that there are sometimes like a scar or a crease or um, you know there are some features that well where do you put them they're you know in more Ashbaian days like you would say all those seem to kind of get grouped under level three but they're not level three they're not the the ridge shapes. And, you know, from my training, which, you know, then this is going back to you, Glenn, being one of my first uh, you know, external trainers, it wasn't just level one, level two, level three of pattern, minutia, and right. pores. It was ridge flow, ridge path, and ridge yeah. shape. And those matched on exactly to level one, two, and three. There's the flow, which is more than just the pattern. It's just how all the ridges move together. There's the path that each individual ridge takes, whether it stops or starts or splits or continues as an open field. And then there's the shapes at a microscopic uh, level, which includes edges and pores and, and all the little wiggly bits as you get uh, zoomed in really closely. Therefore, things like creases and scars uh etc 
have all three levels. The the, right. the scar has a uh, a flow. It has a specific path, and it has very you know specific shapes along its whole its whole run. Um, and, and to be fair, uh, just to give credit where it's due, that idea came from John Vanderkolk, who there you go. saw you know ridge flow, ridge path, ridge shape, which is what Ashbaugh initially had, but. John applied it to creases, crease flow, crease path, crease shape, scar flow, scar path, scar shape, and so on. So it was right. John that John Vanderkolk that came up with that idea. I always thought it was a very elegant solution for this categorization of well, where does it really fall or not? And I, Absolutely. I, I actually, I actually thought it was the best and most elegant solution for that. I, I totally agree. Which is why I was extremely disappointed when I saw that we we're that the new document is going to go down to um, just a macroscopic and microscopic. Uh, the, the the one thing that I the one thing I can appreciate with that is trying to figure out exactly when something becomes level three detail versus level two. I think there is such a blurred line there that if you just throw them both in the same category, micro features. And it takes it off the table because you're basically you're what you're basically saying is class characteristics versus you know individual characteristics, and I'm True. I'm fine with that. So um, you know, I, I still would prefer the 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 three because especially if if the problem was well, where do you put scars and creases? Well, it seems like that was that problem was already solved like 15 years ago. A yeah, agreed, and B, it was solved better than than this because this of just macro and micro, like you said, well, it kind of does loop, uh, lump, loop. Should I keep going with these fingerprint terms? <laughs> it does lump in level two and level three, and I think there there is still an important distinction to be made between the path that the ridge takes. Uh, where it stops and where it ends, and that being a very different thing than the shape of its of the ridges, edges, and pores. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, uh, by the way, I, I did you notice the spelling error in thirty <laughs> twenty? I, I can't help it. Uh, in thirty in box thirty twenty ridge flow yeah, level the, one. Yeah, the big box thirty twenty flexion, flexion crease. Um, Major oh. crease flexion. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, I, I believe this was typed up by a non-fingerprint um, uh, examiner. Um, Unacceptable. Putting pen to paper. And I can see it, though, you know, because inflection has is spelled like that. So you just take the in off of inflection, and you get flexion. <laughs> anyway. Now I'm, um, no, I'm just being a jerk. A lot, a lot of good work was put into this. Kudos to the folks that put this together. Absolutely. The key steps here is take all of this information and document what of this, you know, it doesn't say document whether or not each of these things is present because that, that's kind of insane, but document which of these things make the latent suitable for, um, for examination, suitable for comparison. Yeah. And of course, we since we have a decision like that, there is the possibility that the agency wants to have that verified. And if you verify, then you have to have conflict resolution. So we go through that little loop again, and it's basically the identical loop from up above. Um, 
and uh, then you output, all right, yes, I have deemed this latent print to be either of value or not of value, suitable or not suitable for uh, comparison. Oh. There's a quick, uh, quick leg off if you want to do a latent to latent comparison, and then there's a quick leg off to if you want to do an APHIS search, and then um, depending on how all that works out, basically it flows to the next page of now let's analyze our known print. Right, which again could have been sort of on the side. I'm going to go back to my original comment. <laughs> it just again it it. it it distracts from the the main points to me, but we already discussed. Uh, this one is is fairly short. It, it's a you know a, a quick assessment of the known print, to, you know, with the just a basic question of you know is this going to be good enough to continue on with the comparison, or are they so bad that you can't even move forward, even though your latent is suitable uh, for comparison, and a quick jog off of you know, whether or not you want to obtain better knowns or you can request better knowns um, before and that loops back into uh, to the main process line. Hey, I, w- I just want to go back to something. Uh, going back to box 3070, this is when you are determining that the latent print is suitable, a part of your analysis. 3070 is a documentation step. It's document the features in the region of interest, their reliability which then establishes tolerance, source, orientation, contextual information, all of that. And then it says per agency policy. Yeah, I, I like that because I like that there is a clear step of requirement here that I hope to see in the standard that basically says you got to document your features. You yep. Document the features that form the basis of your examination for suitability and document basically what you observed in the analysis phase. I like that, and I think that's important. Going forward, I think we're, I, I think the profession has moved beyond the, it is because I say so, and I, I, I like where we're going, as in, no, guys, there will always be some documentation. It may be minimal, or it may be a little more intensive, depending on the examination, but I like the, you got to document part, and I, I, and I like how that was worded, and I like that that that's a continuing theme throughout all the steps. Frankly, yeah, oh yeah. There's I counted up. Uh, I can't remember where I wrote down that number, but um, there are significant number of documentation steps uh, throughout this process, and you yes. can identify those just throughout the document. They're the rectangle with the wavy bottom. Yep. Um, so. Uh, look for those as documentation steps. Um, I, I think my body type has been described that way before. <laughs> I I was I was thinking like there's something in there. I can't figure out what the joke would be. There you go, Glenn. Thank you for for pulling it out. Um, yeah, don't worry. I can I can always bring it down a notch. <laughs> so uh, I want to just a quick follow up with that. What you expressed, I totally agree with. That in- my body type is a rectangle with a wavy bottom. <laughs> Oh, well, of course, Thanks, I, of course, I agree with that. But, but uh, <laughs> while while the uh, you know the things you said about that box were, were I totally agree with, especially the documenting the actual features that you're going to be dealing with. This is still how things are done now, and in this document, there's an out, which is the last three words yeah. per agency policy. Meaning, yeah. if agency policy says don't draw uh don't draw dots 
don't uh, mark up features, then you don't have to mark up features, which again is what the current practice is. So that's that's this document. Now, what I will say is that you know, in my involvement uh, in the past and then as a, an affiliate member on the Friction Ridge subcommittee, what I have been very consistent on is every time in the examination document during this analysis stage and then later on in um, comparison evaluation, when documentation comes up about, you know, documenting, you know, features or documenting information, they kind of try to make it generic to be all encompassing. I've always been like, okay, we need to be specific here, not just information in a general term, but specifically at a minimum, the standard needs to be, you have to put dots on the screen or on paper or in holes in paper. You have to indicate where the minutiae are at a minimum for analysis and then when you make the ID uh, at the end. Other stuff, you know, we're going to have different levels of, uh, of documentation, different levels of quality assurance, but at a minimum, you got to show me what you saw during analysis, what minutiae you saw during analysis, and what minutiae corresponded with an ID. And yeah, I'm with you. We'll we'll see. You know that document's still getting worked on, but that's something I've I've continually pushed for as the minimum documentation is at least minutia. Are you okay with automated extraction systems, whether it's um, you know auto extract minutia through APHIS or some other software? Would, would that would that be a, an acceptable replacement? Absolutely. I think that that, uh, that does a good job. I think there's definitely steps that can be taken to improve the kind of human-computer interaction, um, uh, you know, melding of what the computer's good at and what the human's good at. Um, but even if it, as it is right now, really good latent print, auto-extract the minutia, auto-extract the known, the computer mates up the you know, indicates which ones are mated minutiae. Boom, bam, good. It's, it's documented. Um, and it could, that could even still be a pretty good representation of what you saw when, uh, you did your analysis and when you, what you saw that's corresponding. Yeah. Okay. Now how to get that to fit in gyro system. I still need to play around with that in my head for a bit, like how that would all kind of work together or what you could do to make it work even better and again meld you know all of that into um an efficient workflow but yeah marry it to a quality map there you go but it has to be a good quality map. yes <laughs> we've had this discussion before that, that's yeah. uh, there's there can be there's there's more room for improvement with automatic quality maps yeah agreed all right anything else with the knowns before we move into the big page all right, the big page, comparison slash evaluation, and the eight different conclusions <laughs> that you can reach here on this page. I have a few notes here on this page on just how it differs just slightly from the way I I work. So let me kind of walk you through, because you know I think everyone in their head can imagine analysis. It just kind of moves straight forward. You start documenting stuff. You decide, is it good enough to compare or not all right now here this is where it can start to get squirrely in how and it's i think most important to real nail down 
really nail down how examiners move through comparison and evaluation. So you put the latent and the known side by side. You select a target group. I'm on uh, box number 5020 and 5030 now. And then you ask this question, was the target group found in the, the known impression, yes or no? And that kind of puts you down a couple different paths. Um, if no, then you, you basically it means you found no similarities and you start moving down the path towards, you know, possible exclusion. Uh, if yes, it's, you know, okay, now search for additional similarities. And here's where I would make a, you know, one of the most, I think most important, uh, suggestions for a little change is that at this step where it says search for additional similarities, then it moves on to, okay, note the similarities and dissimilarities, basically document them that you see at level two, uh, assign the um, relative value, kind of a, a weight uh, that you would give these similarities and dissimilarities, and then move on to whether or not you're going to or whether or not you can evaluate level three detail. And I think in the whole comparison process, what actually happens here is that you you search for your target group, you find it, you search for additional similarities, and then there's another decision box. Did the did you find additional similarities? If yes, then okay, then proceed down this path, maybe possibly towards an ID, maybe using third level, yada yada yada, that whole path. But if no, then you circle back around to was the target group found in your compared impression? You know, because you may find your target group multiple times, but it not being the real yeah. match yeah. before you right. move on down the yes or no path. Yeah, great point. The important point here is that finding your target group is not equivalent to making the identification. It doesn't mean if you find a target group, that does not mean that you have found the source because that's what everything else comes after that. So your point is you can find your target group, but it could be essentially a non-mate and there's other work needs to be done. Right, right. Like once you find your target group, there's there's still plenty of opportunities yeah. to fall off the path towards an ID um, and and back on to, uh, to uh, exclusion. But that, that circling around of... Did you find the target group? Yes, I did. Oh, nope, never mind. That's not it. Keep looking. Oh, here's a target group in the next finger. Is it? Nope, never mind. That's not it either. And then going back even further, all right, let's try a second target group and repeat the process. Like that that can cycle through yes and no multiple times. And I don't think that's fully captured here of, of yeah. how, how you can loop through that. Yeah, I, I I think your point is well taken that the iterative comparative process can be very complicated, can have multiple reiterations as you go through this, uh, trying to locate target groups that you may or may not find, especially if they're low specificity or pattern forest areas. It may happen many many times in many yeah. different orientations. And it's it's a good it's a it's a subtle, nuanced expert point that it's something that someone has done this for a long time and uh, you know may not uh, <laughs> it, it it's it's a good point right i edited my training documents with a a new workflow kind of mini workflow illustrating that earlier oh, late spring 
for a couple of classes and then at the conference, I think I put it up there as well, not knowing that this was going to be coming out here later this summer, you know, really emphasizing how, how you circle around those, those paths a lot. And my main, one of my main points from that was that I think the hardest thing to train a new latent print examiner on is the, the question of, have I looked for enough target groups? Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember discussing that, in fact, with you when you first went through one of my training courses years ago. We discussed really? that. Yeah, that was one, one of those things that was in the class that was kind of a throwaway comment about, you know, I, I, I used to say in, in the course that I remember that when I, when I first started to recognize, no, I'm comfortable in this field, I'm comfortable with my examinations, and I think maybe I'm now a decent examiner, is when I knew that I had searched enough target groups. Making right. identifications in that first year is actually not that difficult. When you find something, you found it, and you know right. you found it. It took me another four years to five years of doing day-to-day comparisons before I finally came comfortable knowing, okay – I don't have to look anymore. I've searched enough target groups. I can move on. I can exclude. Now, it's probably wrong, according to the research, one in 10 times, one in 11 times. <laughs> that that said, right. I, that comfort level didn't happen until about four years in. And I remember, I, I think I might have been one of the only instructors talking about how difficult it was to know when to feel comfortable excluding versus identififications. And so you and I discussed that. It was something that caught your attention fairly early on, and you and I discussed that during a break. That was, I don't know, what, 10 years ago? 12? I think we, okay. yeah, just 12, maybe like this week. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like you said, an important and very difficult thing to, to gain expertise in. Yeah, and there, there's no good rule for it because because oh, I no. think it, I I think it really can depend that experts should be aware that it could be as many as seven target groups or as few as one that it really depends and part of expertise is knowing when it's enough. Oh yeah, how much paint does it take to paint a house? Yeah. It it depends on a whole bunch, and and same kind of thing. How many target groups does it take to identify or exclude a latent? Well, as much as it takes, it just that's a it's. I think it's doubly hard. Not only is it hard to to gain that experience, but it's also hard to convey that as the expert to the novice, uh, to mm-hmm. someone brand yes. new learning. That's a yes. question that's yes. going to come up pretty soon, and even trying to teach that to them. It's something that, I mean, it really just comes with time. Yeah, there's agreed. there's little things that can help with that. You know, there there's steps you can take to make sure you don't miss things. Or you're looking in the right spot, but it it is um, it's, it's reps, it's repetitions. It's yeah. just it's simply repetitions. So like that, like that, anything uh, in expertise, it's it's repetition. It Ten thousand hours, they say. That's what they say. Yep. Um, that's five years, uh, of 40 hour weeks just for, you know, those that don't want to do the math. All right. So there's a little path on here that, uh, again, I had to just grit my teeth and bear it because this is the current practice. Um, can I exclude on first level detail? (laughs) If yes, then just go right to exclude. (sighs) There should be some circumstances where that would be acceptable. (laughs) 
Uh, okay. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> there's a whole section that goes into, you know, considering third level detail if it's available. Uh, and then uh, again, going now way back to, you know, an even uh, more old school uh, approach is, is uh, box uh, 5390. Uh, mm. Are the data sufficient to the exclusion of all others? Are the similarities sufficient for the exclusion of all others? If yes, then individualization, essentially meaning to the exclusion of all others. Now, again, we've discussed this many, many times, how we, we don't think that's an appropriate conclusion. That uh, Although we should put Michelle Triplett's face there. <laughs> Man, you just throw out these names sometimes, right? I would just be like... Uh, no, you know, there she's are very, some she's, opinions, and uh, I know she's she, very she's, public about it. She, she is. Yeah, if if she was here, she'd have no problem going. The blah blah blah. We still do that, or I still do right. that. Oh, totally. Um, but uh, so this is a box where where you know most examiners uh, working nowadays that have left behind like with the IAI left behind to the exclusion of all others uh, would say nope, we can't. We can't say that, whether by just policy or, or you know, actual agreement. Either way, no, we can't say that. So then you get to, is the data in correspondence sufficient that you would not expect to see it in a different source? Uh, if yes, then identification. And this, again, is after everything else is similarity, similarity, similarities. There's, you know, not really significant differences, if any, uh, throughout all the boxes leading up to this. Um, and but if not the then it's support for same source uh, that new OSAC uh, conclusion falls there when everything else is lining up it's just not sufficient uh, where you may expect to see it in another source um, because of a low quantity quality specificity uh, you'd end up in that one there so now there's the whole other now bottom half that kind of covers the same source side of things then there is um, the different source side of things. And here, instead of just excluding on level one detail, it kind of sends it through a few loops asking about uh, uh, being certain about anatomical source and orientation. And I don't necessarily like how this is all arranged, but I kind of get the overall gist of two of the major things that could uh, lead you astray in thinking that there are differences when there's actually similarities that you're just not seeing. From there, okay, everything is different. As long as uh, additional knowns wouldn't help, then you can exclude. Otherwise, ask for better knowns. If the the scale is essentially balanced, even though I don't like the scale analogy for, for this situation, but if you don't see significant differences and you don't see significant similarities, then it's a conclusive type two. Um, and... Uh, uh, then there's the question about um, exclusion, if there's full support for that versus just support for, uh, for exclusion. The, the one that I, th- I thought you might like is, are the data sufficient to exclude based on agency policy, which right. essentially invokes what you've been teaching for a while, uh, that an exclusion equals the following and then you've got you know your your requirements in there and some of your requirements of course you know needing a core delta or these other things so that the risk of any erroneous exclusion is less and so on so I, I thought you might like the fact that this harkens back to what was it episode 
two episodes ago where we, you and I discussed, or three episodes where we discussed the new OSAC scale for yes. conclusions, that we both agreed that support for exclusion would be when you've got all these differences, but you don't have a core or delta, and it doesn't meet your policy, your agency policy for a definition of when you can exclude. And I, it seemed to capture that nicely. Absolutely. And, and I also like how the, the inconclusive basically follows after weighing the, the similarities and saying, okay, there's no real similarities here. And then after weighing, there's differences and, okay, there's not significant or sufficient differences yeah. then I'm inconclusive. It's after asking basically both of those questions about similarities, about differences, Yeah. then you finally get to inconclusive. It's the, you have to travel the furthest to be inconclusive. Yeah. But let's finish out uh, with the last page, uh, verification and reports. This one's pretty straightforward. There, there's uh, same kind of thing as before, allowing for conflict resolution since there's a verification step. And there's just questions, and it has been the whole time, about whether to do it blind or not, uh, and then documenting and issuing the report and, and getting it tech and tech reviewed as well. A lot of agency and very administrative thing, steps that come with this. Very, again, what I found to be more agency-specific things that could have just been supplemental. And the, there's a, a side uh, path for preliminary reports, which I think needs to be kind of looked at because – yep. Uh, the for me preliminary reports always then flowed back into the main process line after if you need to do a preliminary report it's kind of an extra optional thing before going back into the main path and this one kind of skips over but kind of bypasses some of the tech review in the preliminary report before reporting out the final uh, report but um, besides that you know it, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward uh, section of the document Agreed. Agreed. But just lots of agency policy-specific things. I, the, the number of agencies issuing preliminary reports are so few that, again, I, I, I hate detracting from the main right. meat of the message here. And I think that's a pretty broad definition of preliminary report to just include even a phone call. Yeah. But, uh, but still. Um, so anyway – Overall summary, congratulations to uh, yeah. the Friction Ridge Subcommittee and the, the NIST people that, that put this out. Um, I know it, uh, it took a lot of, uh, of work and was something that was begun early on in the process and is just coming out now. So this is multi-years uh, to, to get it all to this stage. A lot of hard work. Absolutely. And I really do think that it's going to get incorporated uh, maybe it's one piece or maybe a piecemeal into each standard. I think I could see it kind of going either way, but um, as a, a way to, as a supplement to go with the actual written standard to uh, emphasize certain points and to provide clarification as to, to how our examination process uh, should work in a standardized form. Yep. Uh, no, I, I agree. A really, really detailed. A, a lot of hard work and conscientious conscientious thought went into this. This was not done hastily. This was done with forethought and and, and really well done. One minor point I, I can't help but making a slight <laughs> little observation about. 
One of those abbreviations, I'm not quite sure about the PAP, getting your annual PAPs reviewed. <laughs> uh, that might be the one I might want to say, hey, I mean, maybe you want that in there, maybe you don't, but... Well, what what do you expect from the OSAC, you know? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> check, check your OSAC and annual PAPs. He's referring to per-agency policy. Um, Annually, but, <laughs> you should check your agency policies, your per-agency you know, policies. I, I mean, all kidding by li- aside... By a licensed doctor, of course. Right, right. Uh, for all kidding aside, I, I think the... The, uh, the the jokes and stuff about the, again, you know, pun intended, minutia here of this document uh, also speak to uh, uh, to the completeness of it, right? Indeed. Um, no, I have, indeed. If our main criticisms are, you know, the abbreviations <laughs> are sometimes funny and it's too detailed, then that means it's pretty damn good. Yeah, um, they, they, exactly. Uh, overall. They, they, if it's not clear, they should be very proud of their work on this. We're just offering some high-level observations and maybe a few more detailed observations. But if this becomes some sort of reference guide, I think you and I would be ecstatic that it's available for for reference. And if anyone out there uh, you know, has a, has a, a large-capacity uh, printer – and wants to you know <laughs> arrange these onto you know a nice uh, poster size um, uh, printout. Uh, go ahead and and you know take a photo of yourself standing in front of it and, and tag us on Twitter. We'd love to see that. <laughs> yeah, and, and put put it next to your Heather Locklear poster. There you go. <laughs> All right, so. Um, Glenn, uh, let's we'll wrap this uh, this episode up. Uh, so go ahead and uh, start us off with some classes that you have coming up. Yeah, uh, real quickly here, I still have uh, spaces open for the advanced ASB course, the one in Canada and Calgary that's in March, and the one in New Jersey, which is in April. And the new class just got added. I've mentioned this before, and hopefully in a future episode we'll dig in a little bit more. This is the one with Brendan Max, a defense attorney, and Carrie Hall, where we go through testimony issues. That new class got added. That will be October in the Boston area. Uh, go to Ron Smith and Associates. Dot com. If you're interested in registering for any of those classes or other classes that I or other instructors teach. Reminder, doubleitpodcast.com. Uh, you can find a bunch of our episodes. Uh, also now, find merchandise. Uh, what would be better uh, as a stocking stuffer than a nice uh, Double Loop Podcast uh, shot glass or t-shirt? Um, oh, there's all sorts of things. And again, you can transfer this, you know, these designs onto a skateboard even. Um, I, I know Glenn will be looking at that specifically. Oh, um, for sure. I, I, <laughs> next time I'm going to do uh, an Ollie or a reverse Norton, absolutely. I'll be, uh, there you go. You can reach out to us, uh, on Twitter at WPod. Also same on Instagram. Uh, emails glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com i definitely appreciate you guys reaching out with any uh, comments or feedback uh to to there including uh, the occasional hate mail <laughs> if you see us in person go ahead and ask us and and we'll, we'll fill you in but otherwise we won't really bring it up it it, it does make us laugh though it does it does <laughs> and and you know what what is there in life if not to laugh? 
Um, Indeed. Not sure if that's how the saying goes exactly, but you get the drift. Uh, the, the the opinions made on this show are those of the speaker and not anybody that, that uh, we work for or with. I think that's everything, right, Glenn? That is. All right. Talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.